Hello everyone. So we have recorded a really great episode for you about the Fort Guild Virgin. It's a conversation Lily and I are both super excited to share with you. Um, unfortunately, we are still figuring out how to record a podcast remotely in an affordable way uh, without trying to spend a ton of money on an audio service or equipment. Um, so this episode does have um, some audio hiccups and delays and it should be manageable. You should be able to understand everything that we're talking about, but we ask that you forgive the, uh, the sound quality for a little bit. And if anybody has any tips on how to effectively record um, podcasts remotely in a very cheap way, uh, feel free to uh, let us know at blockbustedpod at gmail.com. So here's our episode on the 40-year-old virgin. Porn was so wholesome before the internet, really. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, would, I don't um, know that I would call it wholesome, but it was different. It was very different uh, in a lot yeah, of ways. Yeah, but by like modern standards, like wholesome. Wholesome. I'm going to stand by this statement, Michael. <laughs> this is Blockbusted, a podcast about the movies we love and how they shape the world as we know it. Hosted by Michael Wolf and Lily Asuda. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Blockbusted. I am doing the intro today because Lily told me that she always does the intro and doesn't like it. So here's your intro from me, Michael, one of your co-hosts. Today, we are talking about The 40-Year-Old Virgin, directed by the one and only Judd Apatow. It came out in 2005. Um, yeah. Which we can now all feel uncomfortable about how that was, like, 7,000 years ago. Like, I was reading reviews for this movie, and, like, my, uh, like, my Google search bar was informing me. It was like, this review was written 15 years ago. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how time works. <laughs> yeah, 2005 was a while ago. It was a while ago. Um, but, but so, Lily, Lily, uh, what do we think, you know, we always like to talk about the three different prongs of movie analysis, the difference between liking something, mm -hmm. thinking it's good, thinking it's important. Where do you fall on this canon when it comes to the incredible masterpiece yeah. of, of mm -hmm. toxic masculinity that is the 40 year old virgin? And do, that is a loaded question. Too early. I know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I will say I had not, I'd never seen this movie at all. Um, so I saw it for the first time last night and, uh, I think this is normally your thing, but I'm just going to go with, I did not like it. It's not good. And I don't think it's important at all. Um, but within, I guess all of that being said, wanting to contextualize sort of why we chose this movie, I actually think I'm the one who sort of pushed for this movie. Um, and yeah, I think coming off of some darker, more serious, you know, we started the show with when harry met sally and i think that was a aside from just being a comfort zone for the both of us i think it's important to treat kind of um like softer genre movies that are often written off as like oh well they don't have to not only do they not have to say anything valuable but it doesn't matter if they say things that are problematic because they are not weighed in the same way that say what you will about the Oscars, but sort of like an Oscar movie or a quote, serious drama needs to. Um, and so I think 
we were interested in talking about 40 year old virgin as a way of sort of looping back around to comedy specifically like early 2000s male driven comedy that sort of gets us into the canon of judd apatow at large and yeah ways in which uh i don't think we need to treat this as a, as a kind of film that it's not i don't know that this is going to go down in history as like the afi 200s most important films by any means but um, yeah, giving it giving it a little more uh, examination, not just as a single story, but sort of where it fits into the types of stories we tell about masculinity at large. But yes, as far as those three prongs go, that is three thumbs down for me. <laughs> That's totally fair. Um, so what about you? You have seen you have seen this movie many a time, correct? Yes. Um, so this was. Uh... You know, back after my bar mitzvah, I had quite a bit of cash. And one of the things that I naively decided to do with that cash was put it all into DVDs and build up a DVD collection. Oh my god. Um, That's the best sentence I've ever heard an adult man say. Like, it just <laughs> doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Um, the, the coup de grace was, like, accumulating, like, 300 plus DVDs and then giving most of them away for free because they're not worth anything. Um, right. Uh, and there's something sort of meta about that. Cause like Steve Carell's character in this film has a whole thing where he's like trying to sell this woman, like a VCR, a VHS player. And she, he's like, Oh no, DVDs are the future. So um, yeah, definitely, definitely getting strong 2005 vibes off of this film. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah, so this was like one of my, um, what I would call fall asleep movies. I would watch it frequently and fall asleep to it. Um, I thought it was funny when, you know, I watched it in like 2009, 2010. Um, is, totally. Uh, I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. So I watched it quite frequently. I thought it was a great movie. I completely looked up to Judd Apatow as like, a role model of a filmmaker. I loved Freaks and Geeks. I loved Knocked Up. I loved Funny oh, People. Yeah. Um, yeah. I really thought he was like a smart guy. Um, didn't really land for me now. I think, do I like this movie yeah. now? No, I do not. Did I in the past? Yes. Have I grown a lot as a person? absolutely yeah yeah totally um you're not on trial i promise i think it's okay if you, there's still part of you that enjoyed this movie <laughs> yeah um is this movie good i think this movie is um i think this movie is good um i think it's pretty well written it's like got a very toxic ideology behind it but i think it is well written i think the comedic timing in it is good um is this movie important? I actually, I absolutely think this movie is important because this movie launched, huh. this, this movie is a, con oh, it's yeah. a con so first off, this movie is a continuation of like the revenge of the nerd, like part, totally. the movie that like kind of launched like nerd, like masculinity or what geek masculinity or whatever was revenge of the nerds. And mm -hmm. 40-Year-Old Virgin was the biggest continuation of that. This movie was Judd Apatow's directorial debut. Uh, he wrote it with Apatow and... Like, Apatow wrote it with Steve Carell. Seth Rogen produced mm -hmm. it, along with a bunch of other people. This launched Steve Carell's uh, career. Like, this... Right, right. The NBC was literally green-lighting the... Uh, NBC was literally in the process of deciding whether or not they wanted to cancel The Office... 
and they decided <laughs> not to because of this movie. Be- yeah. Because of Steve yeah. Carell's, because this elevated Steve Carell's profile, because before this, he was just like a side part in Anchorman. And this, right. this launched his career. And then we know Judd Apatow, um, you know, who is pretty well known, not just for the movies he's directed, but like being a producer in the in totally. the modern uh, like comedy space of these like totally. romance and romantic championed. comedies. Yeah, yeah. And he he champions Definitely. a lot also, of a lot of people. He's like Lord. Yes, Mi- like, he's like the other like <laughs> non SNL version of Lord Michaels. Yeah, he is totally the non SNL version of Lord Michaels. Yes, but he went on to be an executive producer on Girls. He jump start jump started Lena Dunham's career. Uh, he was a producer on The Big Sick. Um, he, yeah, has championed a lot of, and I, like, I assume he and Kristen Wiig are good friends. I feel like he's always around on, like, Kristen Wiig projects. Um, mm-hmm. Amy Schumer. He, he Amy Schumer, yes, Amy, Amy Schumer. Schumer. Pete Davidson's his latest thing. Ugh. We're gonna do a whole episode about fucking Pete Davidson, but not today. Um, <laughs> yeah, so he, yeah, Judd Apatow certainly is involved in really what feels like pretty much every corner of comedy. Um, yeah, and not that this episode is going to be about The Office or the legacy of Michael Scott, although, sidebar, maybe we need, like, a special episode where we talk about Michael Scott as a person, but is, to Michael's point, I think an interesting reminder of this film being kind of a time capsule in those early iterations of Steve Carell's career, not, and I really like Steve Carell as an actor, and he's now kind of that brand of, uh, like more serious actor who's been able to like jump the shark from doing like just comedy or bit parts to moving into more quote serious roles. And I actually think he's, he's really wonderful as a performer. If you haven't seen the morning show, I not a great show, but I thought he was outstanding in that. Mm. Um, But, uh, but yeah, a guy whose ultimate real claim to fame will be being Michael Scott. I think these early sorts of very problematic films in which he is like the lovable, the lovable dorky underdog who means well and ultimately gets like a big free pass because of his good intentions. Um, this is certainly setting the stage for the roles that he will inhabit uh, later in his career. Totally, totally. And it's it's interesting to watch this movie too, right? Because like the cast is just completely stacked. You got you got so many Shit, big yeah. You got so many big names in this who are in the very early days of their career, like just from Steve Carell alone, but like, so we've got, we've got, uh, Catherine Keener is, is, is the love interest. We've got, uh, Andy's Steve Carell plays this dude named Andy. We're going to get into him in a second. We get into the summary, but then we've got Paul Rudd in an early role as one of the friends. Um, Romani Malco Mm -hmm. is, uh, the token black friend. He's interesting in this. He, 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 he's probably like one of the most prominent. What else has he done? I, I was, I was not familiar with him. Yeah, he's he's probably one of the most prominent people who I don't see around that much anymore. Um, he was in uh, Weeds and um, oh. a, a Million Little Things. Um, okay, shit. Is, is I love Weeds. In. I haven't thought yeah. about that show in like a billion years. Yeah. Yeah. And Seth Rogen, Elizabeth Banks, Leslie Mann, because Leslie Mann is always in a Judd Apatow film. They're married, or at least they were. I don't know if they're still together. And uh, Jane Lynch, as, as the person that Jane Lynch always is, mm-hmm. um, as uh, Paula, their badass store manager. And would 10 out of 10 would watch a movie about Paula. 
<laughs> totally. Paula's interesting. Uh, there's some really yeah. uncomfortable scenes with Jane Lynch in this movie, though, where there's this like blatant, blatant sexual harassment that's happening, and you're like, "Ooh, this is played for laughs, but it's yeah. uncomfy." It's and that's that's probably yeah, that's the entirety okay. of this movie is things that are played for laughs that are uncomfy, and that's what we mean when we talk about Steve Carell as a performer. Is like those are the roles he really inhabits, and totally. Um. Totally. Other stack people in this, we got Jerry Bednob, Shelley Malil, uh, young, very young Kat Dennings, uh, Mindy Kaling, Mindy Kaling, David Keckner, uh, very, very young Jonah Hill, uh, early days Kevin Hart, and then of course the one and only Stormy oh Daniels, goodness. who has a cameo what? in a porn role. Who was Sto- who is Stormy Daniel? Oh, she's she's like the porn star in the porn. Yes. Yeah, when he's oh, watching well, porn in that masturbation scene, and then he changes yeah, it to, yeah. to the to the tapings of Paul, of Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is wow. which is a funny scene, I'll admit. Um, it's one of the which I think you can really just capture as a throwback to 2005 being a year where we never could have possibly fucking imagined that Stormy Daniels would go on to be quote a political figure question mark. Um, so that's a fun, a fun moment. That, and then that scene is also just, like, so fascinating, because it's like, oh yeah, like, that's what porn was like before the internet. Right! Oh my, right, porn was so wholesome before the internet, really, (laughs) like. (laughs) I would, I don't know Um, that I would call it wholesome, but it was different, it was very different, uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, but by, like, modern standards, like, wholesome. Wholesome. (laughs) I'm gonna stand by this statement, Michael. (laughs) Okay. Um, that's really what I want in the well, caption of this episode. As, as a side note, have you heard of the? I just heard of this porn company the other day. They're called Bell Essa. Yes, I I I didn't think we were gonna have this conversation on the podcast, but yes, I have. So for our listeners who don't know, Bell Essa is a fascinating thing because it's a women-run porn company, um, and they like literally ask like they they ask they ask like a they ask female performers what what is a porn star they want to work with? And then they like kind of do porn that like is more intimate and highlights Mm -hmm. female pleasure as much as Mm -hmm. male pleasure. And like, that's part of it. Um, And I don't know that they fully meet the mark because it's still porn, but it's like way more wholesome than anything you will find on Pornhub. Totally. A low bar by any standards, but yes. Um, Okay, well, this was our fun, <laughs> our fun segue into the world of contemporary porn. And as an equally effortless segue, uh, I think let's hop into summary territory. We've got a lot of ground to cover, and I'm guessing, first of all, I imagine if our listeners have seen this film. If you haven't seen this film, there's not a whole lot that the title doesn't tell you about the plot of the film. Um, but we will we'll do a, a quick scan and hopefully get into more of the, the juicier stuff. Yes. Um, so... He- so are, are yeah, you yeah. doing it or am I doing it? I've, you did it yesterday, so I was going to do this one. But okay. if you're like on a roll, you know, you did the intro. So I don't want to step on your toes here. No, no, you t- you can do it. We're doing Wikipedia summaries now, uh, I think, so that we can <laughs> be as efficient mm-hmm. as possible with our time. Because we've spent like 20 minutes doing summaries before. So, totally. All you. Um, yes. 
Great. Wow, I feel so powerful. So, yeah, our film follows uh, Andy, who, uh, played by Mr. Steve Carell, is a shy 40-year-old introvert who works as a stock supervisor at an electronics store. Um, we see through the opening once that, like, oh, he's a stereotypical, quote, loser. He's very well-groomed. He's very tidy. He's very polite. He's very safe. Um, he doesn't uh, own a car. He rides his bike. Um, we see him sort of a, a guy who plays by the rules, which we understand in Macho Man speak is like, oh, he's he's beaten down, right? He doesn't have what it takes to like step up and advocate for himself. Um, and works kind of a unremarkable job in an unremarkable store. We meet his uh, quirky group of coworkers, David, Jay, and Cal, um, played by... Uh, oh shit, I'm switching documents here, uh, played by uh, Paul Rudd, uh, Romani Malko, and Seth Rogen, respectively, um, all of whom are sort of unique flavors of douchebag. Um, Romani Malko is sort of like the, he has a girlfriend, but is always cheating on her, like the womanizer. Uh, Seth Rogen is the person that Seth Rogen can play, and Paul Rudd is the guy who got his heart broken in his last relationship, and now like can't put himself back out there. Um, and, uh, these guys have a certain camaraderie. Andy is really not part of this. Um, unfortunately, they're looking for someone else to join their poker group. And so they end up being sort of, uh, pressured into having Andy join. So Andy joins, uh, his coworkers for poker one night. It becomes readily apparent that Andy has no sexual experience and he later reveals that he is a virgin. So the three guys take it upon themselves to, uh try and uh, get Andy laid through any means possible. And, and so the they, second like, act They follows. out him yeah. at work. They out him at work. Yeah. It's they so out him at gross. Work. And then everyone else in the store and also their boss, played by Jane Lynch, is making fun of him for being a virgin. Andy is humiliated. And then Paul Rudd's character, who's kind of like the good guy of the group, uh, confronts Andy and is like, look, we're just trying to help you. Like, let us, give us a chance and we'll we'll help you. We'll help you get laid. It'll change your life. Um, so the second act follows a series of crazy events in which they try to hook Andy up with various women and or get him to have sex. They take him to a speed dating event where everyone's a lunatic. Uh, they, uh, Andy's self-conscious about his physical appearance. And so one of the guys tells him that he should get his chest waxed, um, which goes exactly how you would expect Steve Carell getting his chest waxed in a comedy to go, which is to say not well. And they actually um, waxed him. For the, no. for the shot, yeah. Really? And that whole scene. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, it's, it's uh, Jay's character is uncomfortable, right, in that scene. Yes. And that's true in, like, Romani Malco literally had to leave. He was, like, going to puke. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. um, um, but then they set him up so they... with a with a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Con con who ends up being trans and so that's the whole gag of like oh my god i can't believe you set me up with a man um and uh then uh david again paul rudd's character who is sort of the quote good guy at least in comparison to the other two uh, gives Andy this huge collection of porn and encourages him to masturbate because Andy is somehow both a virgin and has also like never watched porn question mark which again is not a judgment I'm just saying feels like a character inconsistency I'm like you know what no again no judgment on Andy's life but I'm like mm, I don't know do I buy that hard to say yeah um, he's like never but... masturbated before right or like not never but like not often like this is not a relevant thing for us to be arguing about, but I was like, yeah, the, like, how, how? Um, 
Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. And they also kind cute. of skate over like why, not necessarily why is he a virgin, but like why is he so frightened of sex? Um, not that I don't believe pretty much everyone is essentially pretty frightened of sex, um, but they keep it sort of ambiguous as far as like what sort of emotional trauma does he have, right? I mean, I understand the as he's getting older and is increasingly insecure about the fact he hasn't had sex, that that starts to feel more and more unreachable. And we'll talk in a minute a little bit more about kind of expectations around male sexuality, etc. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm saying this really as a writing note. They keep it sort of softly ambiguous as far as like, what does what what is it that Andy worries is wrong with him? Yeah, there's um, like a weird... From, well, there's like a weird Christian undertone to it, but like not, but but it's never explicitly right. Christian, right? right? Like it's not like he's repressed and not having sex because of religious reasons or anything. It's like kind of like he's had some toxic experiences with sex where like right. it didn't go well. Um, but but like there's like this unspoken thing where uh, like of like Andy is Christian in everything, but in name only, uh, almost uh, in terms of how right. he approaches like puritanically approaches sex i don't know it's weird right. and it's ultimately weird. the messaging of like how sex works which we'll get to in a minute so anyway they try to set him up with various women it is not successful they try to take him to a club and like oh we're gonna fuck the drunkest women here and he goes home with les he tries to go home with leslie mann but she's so drunk that she like almost kills them in her car and then pukes all over him and so they end up not having sex because he doesn't drive because um, that's another way also, that's another right. way he's very conservative he like doesn't which is also drive just like an essential logical fallacy like if you were in the car with someone who was like blackout drunk why would you not just be like hey i'll drive the car um so none of these things are successful and he's not having sex he thinks the porn is disgusting uh he tries to give himself this sort of like quote romantic night to like watch porn and masturbate but he's just like not into it um and then he ends up uh through a series of uh crazy fun events that could only happen in a sitcom comedy um, he has a crush on uh, a woman named Trish who works at an electronics store across the way. He keeps trying to ask her out, but can't literally can't bring himself to even pick up the phone because he's so nervous. And so finally he's able to ask her out. They go on a date. It goes well. They almost have sex, but they're interrupted by her teenage daughter walking in on them. So they don't have sex. Um, and uh, Trish is sort of like, hey, like maybe we should just take it slow. We don't need to. We don't need to have sex yet. And Andy agrees. So they end up not having sex for the next twenty dates. Which also, holy fuck, that's a lot of dates. Not even like a lot of dates to not have sex. That's just like a lot of dates. Like how how long is this twenty dates going on? Um, they get again, pretty serious. I know. Like, excuse me while I get caught up in the the logic notes here. But I'm like, that feels like a lot of dates. Um, and their relationship's going really well. Um, they encourage each other sort of mutual dreams of, you know, she's supportive of his nerdiness and he's supportive of her business goals and it's great. And he bonds with her teenage daughter, um, who we discover is like starting wanting to be sexually active. And so she gets in an argument with her mom about whether or not she should be on birth control. And Andy actually ends up uh, taking her to a group information sec session at like a Planned Parenthood Which do organization. Which do those exist and function that way? Because I... A, a group of dads taking their kids to a birth control clinic. I just, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Also, does feel Jesus-y to me. Like, if that exists, would feel Jesus-y. 
um, like love fathers being able to have transparent relationships with their kids in the sense of like supporting them and making sexually safe decisions. But I don't know if that is common or really a thing. So yeah, we'll put that on the list of things that didn't totally, totally vibe for me. Um, but at this session, uh, Trisha's daughter, her name is Marla. We can acknowledge her name. Marla is mocked for being a virgin and Andy ends up admitting that he is also a virgin in order to defend her. So he has sort of this bonding moment with, uh, with the daughter. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other sort of like wildly unnecessary B plots that just like keep happening. This movie's like two, two hours long, two hours and 10 minutes long, which is crazy for a comedy. Like this is a very long movie. They uh um, they passed the world record for like 1 million feet of film uh cuz this was shot on film and Oh my god. And and uh I think it was Technicolor uh like literally gave them free champagne because they were like you broke oh a record. Oh my god. Right. Like she got a very improv centric group of people and I'm sure they were just like shooting stuff up the zoo like whether or not they used any of it. Um, well, the side, the side note, one improv so, thing we, we can't fail to mention is there's this waxing scene where Steve Carell's getting waxed and he says Kelly Clarkson. And apparently, uh, like he's like Seth Rogen put that in because they needed to have some clean options for the joke. And apparently between American Idol and that one little clip from 40 year old virgin, those are the two things Kelly Clarkson is known for. And she's said this to Seth Rogen in an interview before. And I just think that's funny. That's excellent. Um, that is, is very funny. But to um, end the summary. So wrapping up our summary. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. To end our summary. So, uh, yes, Andy's co-workers get into a series of other shenanigans, most notably being, uh, uh, is Cal the terrible guy who's f cheating on his girlfriend? No, that's Jay. And Andy has to, like, cover from him. There's, that's Jay, excuse me. Um, so, like, Jay's girlfriend breaks up with him because he's cheating on her. But then they get but back then together. then he finds out that she's pregnant. Yeah. Then they get back together because, like, he's sorry. And it's not just that he cheats on her once. It's, like, his whole character is that he was always cheating on her. And, like, Andy covers for him because when they go to the speed dating event, he, like, writes all of these absolutely disgusting, inappropriate notes about, like, how fuckable all the women are. So do not love that. Um and then finally, Andy and Trish try to have sex. He sh shuts her down. She's worried that there's something wrong with him. He ends up finding, she ends up finding all of the porn uh, that Paul Rudd has given him and is like freaks out and is like, oh my God, are you some kind of like crazy sexual deviant? Um, and he's like, no. And then we get this big epic chase sequence played for laughs because Steve is on a bike, of course. And uh, he ends up, uh, she ends up hitting him with her car while she is driving away. And he confesses that he is a virgin and that this is why he's been acting so weird. And he just really cares about her. And he didn't want to, he didn't want to fuck up the sex pun very much intended here. Um, and she forgives him and they decide to get married. And then the end of the movie is them having sex on their wedding night. Mm -hmm. And the gag is that like, Oh, the first round, he only lasts one minute. And then the second round is her like drenched in sweat, fucking exhausted because it took him like two hours to come the second time. And then they do this very elaborate Bollywood question mark inspired lip sync of Aquarius. Let the sunshine in unclear why that is there. Um, it's weird. So that's, uh, that's the movie. But I guess in the simplest terms, it being, it's about a guy who's a loser who is able to eventually learn how to get laid 
and realizes that sex is sex only matters if it's with someone who you love and through the confines of a heterosexual marriage and i guess that's the thing that i thought both in rereading the summary and going through our notes michael that i was sort of the most struck by it because while i don't in any way think that was intentional it is fascinating that like ultimately their commentary is like very jesus-y to me of like oh good sex real sex meaningful sex exists only through the vacuum of monogamous heterosexual marriage yeah um and that's an interesting place to me that we that we end up um so I know there's a lot to a lot to parse through. We, we'll talk a little bit about the messaging around uh, around sex, around women, around male friendship, around masculinity. Um, but Michael, I guess uh, I, I'll sort of kick the ball back in your court. Um, what what to you is the most striking about this film? Um, and I guess as you know, at the time, like a, a teenage boy watching this film, um, kind of like what did that what did that mean to you, or how did that fit into other kinds of messaging you were receiving about sex or women or or yeah, any any of that stuff? Yeah. So I said this to you the other day when we were talking about like why would we want to talk about this movie? And I guess like because there's so much there's so much to talk about in here, right? Like, and we're not even going to begin to talk really about the racism, the misogyny, the transphobia, mm -hmm. the whorephobia, like, but to me, this movie perfectly encapsulates like how patriarchy is oppressing men. Like just as a kid growing up, like, like I, the notion that like being a virgin is something men need to focus on to be like like need to lose to be a real man is one of the most toxic things you can possibly suggest in society and like how men view themselves how men view women it it is it is disgusting and it it's very harmful and you know like as somebody who who is a man and who has been in relationships with other women like one of the things that was really hard for a long time for me to realize when I was entering into relationships with women was like the note, especially because the movie ends like on this note, the moral is like, you have to, you should have sex with somebody you're in love with. Right. And so, okay. So me as a man internalizes this and thinks like, okay, so I need to like, Every person I meet, I need to make sure I'm really in love with them and put as much pressure on myself and our relationship as possible to be in love with them so that we can have sex. And then the conquest is achieved and I am a man. And right. I approached relationships with women like that. And right. I don't like that at all. I had to work through that in therapy. Um... And I think that's worth naming because this movie is incredibly toxic. Like the notion that we even need to have a movie about virginity period, right? Like, right. like, and I'm not saying like we shouldn't talk about virginity, but it feels like, it feels like the entire narrative around sex and like selling sex and all of these things is like so disproportionate to what it actually is. Uh, and that that is coloring the entirety of like, folks' interactions with each other, and I don't right. like it. Right, and I think that, well, first of all, if we want to, well, not the bulk of 
where I was imagining this conversation would go. I mean, let's talk a little bit about like what even is virginity, because virginity is inherently very heteronormative. If you are, for instance, a gay woman, uh, then by if you are a queer woman who has never had sex with a man, then by many standards, that would be that you are a virgin, that you have never had sex, because by sex, we mean penetrative sex. Um, right. And then that becomes like, well, is anal sex really sex? Like, and, and then what does this do to, especially in relationships where there is a male partner present, the idea that what's really important is the penetrative part of sex, not everything else. And all of that is very problematic, but I would say, so that sort of becomes like, regardless of whether or not we should talk about virginity, let's be clear in what we mean when we talk about virginity. Um, and I think that's part of it. And that I, as a as a writer or as like a consumer of media, I write a lot about sex and honestly think we should talk way more about sex in the media, but that I think that problem becomes, as we see at maybe a, a smaller scale in this film, it becomes the way in which like we sort of culturally tried to cross the wires between like love and respect and partnership and sex and to suppose that are all, those are all somehow the same thing, right? That like, oh, well, if you love someone, that means you'll have great sex. Or because you have great sex with someone, that means that you should date them. And uh, certainly in my own experience, I don't know that those things are inherently true at all. In fact, I think more often than not, they're not related. And this is the problem, right? Where people end up in relationships, uh, and I'll use heavy quotation marks around relationships, but we end up dating people or sticking around with people who we don't really like or respect or find very compatible because we like having sex with them. Um, and yeah, that that's, I think, recognizing the ways in which those things are different and I think all equally valid on their own. Like, I, I fucking hope that everybody gets to experience like really great, hot, epic sex. Um, but that's, that might not be with the person who you marry. And that's not all or nothing. It's not that either sex is amazing or it's terrible. Um, but that to me, this fits into the larger way in which we talk about maybe romance in general. And that what go what boils down to being a pretty like Christian heteronormative marriage centric goal oriented approach to sex, um, which aside from whether or not that's progressive or good, is just not true. Yeah. Um, well, and anybody who's lost their virginity will tell you, right? Like, it literally means nothing in a sense. Like for some reason, it means everything in society in terms of how we talk about it, but it also means nothing, right? Like. You're not a different person afterwards of because of it. But like, like okay, like we're, if we're talking about like retrospective commentary of how this movie is viewed, right? Like you can literally go to Wikipedia. Here's the mm -hmm. last point on it. This literally says um, from NME, 15 years after the film's premiere, the publication NME writer Beth Webb praised its use of a mature virgin for a protagonist who does not feel sex-starved. She called that aspect a milestone for cinema's muddled relationship with virginity in which women have since taken control of their virtue on screen while men remain largely underrepresented and declared the movie as a whole to be a milestone for sex-positive cinema. What do you make of that? Well, that seems like a very convoluted point. Um, I mean, I guess I... I'm not looking at this point directly in front of my eyes, but based upon uh, what you just said, I, I, I do have to give it to Steve Carell. I think there are moments of this film that feel very sweet. And I do appreciate that he is not, um, he is not written nor portrayed as like a creepy stalker. It's not that he's like 
sitting in his house jerking off all the time and like ogling women like he very much pushes back on basically all of the we'll say tools but uh ways in which his shitty co-workers are trying to help him um he really rejects almost all of that mm -hmm. and i like i think the final i was surprised at that final moment at the end where uh, after he's been hit by her car that he confesses to Trish that he is a virgin. That moment reads as like very sweet and very human to me. And I do think there's value in exploring. Like, this sounds weird, but like in, in exploring sexuality and vulnerable sexuality from a male point of view, I don't think that's a perspective we very often get. Um, however, I think it's important that like most of the quote comedy that pads out this film is making fun of both Steve Carell and the type of man that he represents. So I think it's difficult for me to say that that's somehow progressive or subversive or something, because even if in the end, maybe the moral is like Steve Carell learns, he just needs to completely ignore all of the other advice he's getting. Um, I feel like there are much better ways in which we could have told that story. If the goal was like, Hey, let's have a, I don't know, a more tender conversation with an adult man about what it means to discover your sexuality. Because I think that's an important story, but I don't think this movie is in any way that story. So let's let's talk for a sec about Andy as a nerd, because that seems to yes. that seems to come into this, right? Like one of the things you sent me um, in the pre-work for this uh, mm -hmm. was uh, this pretty good uh, video, like video essay on the Big Bang Theory and like nerd culture as it relates to toxic masculinity. And I think that gets into this this whole thing of like Andy is this very nerdy dude, right? Who plays video games. He has like a specific video game chair. He paints minute like uh like miniature figures from mm -hmm. like Dungeons and Dragons or Warhammer or whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it. He reads comic books and like laughs at them um like in ways that like I wouldn't like like this movie has a very antiquated <laughs> view of nerd culture. Yes. Um uh he had he collects old toys he's made fun of his co-workers think of him as like they, they literally like literally seth rogan apologizes to him and he's like i thought you were a serial killer right. and like because of his side parted hair and his very clean khakis and yeah and he's like he's like a really like you know like he's a really well put together dude right like right. he's he works out every day he like hand makes his like own breakfast every morning like right. like and it's a it's a nice fucking breakfast like there's some self-care totally. going on there yeah yeah snaps for snaps for andy and i that's a lot of what i was struck of especially in that opening sequence of like oh here's how we're establishing that like andy's a loser where i'm like or, or like and he lives alone and he's nice to his neighbors and that makes him a loser and i'm like i don't know i don't think that makes you a loser right and that like what a sort of sad binary we have for i mean i think we have this for female characters too but for the purpose of this conversation of male characters right that it's like you have the loser the nerd the underdog the weirdo who's usually played by someone who's a comedian uh like sort of bulking up their own roles, right? We could talk to some, we could speak along similar lines to like Will Ferrell or Jonah Hill or Seth Rogen or uh, Jim Carrey or, right, where it's like, hi, let's take like a very, not that it's about looks, but a pretty like six out of 10 middle-aged white guy and have his love interest be like a 23 year old woman in a bikini. Um, 
and that we're supposed to feel good about that despite and i say that not as a not as throwing some sort of shade to the aesthetic of a couple but that as such behavior he may display that is bigoted sexist inappropriate or downright creepy is like well but it's better for him to be with her than the shitty jockey guys that she normally sleeps with like oh we hate like the handsome muscly guys who go to the gym like they're the bad guys um and so i find something interesting in steve carell not just in this movie but i think in really any steve carell comedy really leaning into the idea of the everyman but though we understand the everyman is sort of in direct opposition to like you know the the more alpha more overtly macho type of man um yeah yeah so, but yes i'm like yeah i'm like andy's living his best life i can leave him alone like if he wants to ride his bike that's great like and if he likes living alone and likes spending time alone that does not make you a loser like <laughs> Yeah, it's it's weird. It's really weird how all of that is painted as like a loser thing. And I'm like, this dude just seems to have his shit together. And like, like I can understand like wanting to say he's a little unfulfilled, right? Sure. By not having a partner. But I guess like even that like kind of throws me off because it's like, why is that? Like, say it's not about having sex. It's just about having a partner. Like there are so many ways to be fulfilled in life without having a partner. And, totally. Or and, the ways in which he might be unfulfilled are maybe because he doesn't like his job or he doesn't have any friends. Not like, oh no, he needs to get laid. <laughs> like, right, right. No, that's 100% it. Um, and so the, the Big Bang Theory episode you sent me, they used an interesting technical term for this that I had heard about in film school and honestly forgot about, but it's called lampshading. Um, and it seemed very relevant here, which is the idea is like... Basically, you have these characters who are painted as an underdog, who uh, who uh, are um, like saying horrible, saying and doing horrible things, right? Um, but yeah, which we'll say bigoted or racist or misogynistic, problematic types of behaviors. We can use Michael Scott as the ultimate type of character. Right. But that it's given with sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge of maybe his behavior is abhorrent. But we as the audience under maybe maybe another character tells him that what he's saying is inappropriate and then he keeps doing it. But we get we as the audience and more importantly, we as say like the writers and producers get to say like, well, we're not condoning this behavior because we're saying it's bad. But we're still going to make all of the jokes revolve around very bigoted sentiments. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, like, it's, like, cute and permissible because it's not the normal, especially because it's not the normal, like, oh, like, it's still blatantly toxic and problematic, but it's not the, it's not the most common, like, like, uh, toxic, problematic thing, right? Sure, or there's something that makes us as the audience feel clever, or, or we as the writers feel clever to be like, hey, look, we're calling it out in a way that's funny. But then we get to just keep laughing at the problematic joke. Yeah. And that's this entire movie in a nutshell. Like this movie is just all of those jokes because you're like, you're like Jay, Romani Falco's character is mm. one of the most atrocious human beings I've ever seen on screen uh honestly and like we there are they're fucking like ted bundy movies right like hannibal lecter's a thing but but what is what is so atrocious about jay is how common he is yeah like he is a womanizer he views he only views women through sex he literally talks about like he he pitches he pitches like having sex as like 
taming the gazelle. Like you gotta, like you're a lion and you gotta, you gotta pounce on them. It's written, it's written into man's DNA to go and, and pounce on the gazelle. Right. right, and the metaphor being you should go for the weak gazelles, and this is in the context of a nightclub where he goes on to explain that what he means is that you should go after the drunkest women possible because they are the most likely to have sex with you. Yeah, and Andy is, and Andy's like, oh, this is gross. I don't want to do this, but, but, and and like that's the joke, right? Is like we know we know Jay's like wrong. We know Jay's like terrible, uh, and he's a foil to Andy, and so therefore it makes it okay to represent Jay in this way. But it's like then Jay gets Jay wins right, and then Andy is peer pressured into participating in rape culture because he picks up Leslie Mann, who is way right. too drunk to do anything, and Andy is right. and then almost sober. Them. Andy yeah. is a hundred percent sober and is gonna go home with her, and like we're supposed to feel for him because he got into the car uh, with her, uh, like even though she's driving drunk, but like if they had gone home, he would have had sex with her and he would have been completely sober and she would have been completely intoxicated and may not even have remembered their, their encounter. Right. And I, in the spirit of, I think recognizing, yes, there is a lot of just painfully obvious racism and sexism and horrible depictions of queerness and lesbians and jokes at the expense of brown people and gay people and we're not going to go into that because it's really so so painfully apparent i don't feel there's much for us to analyze but i do think it's worth briefly touching on the way in which women are portrayed and aside from the fact that the year is 2005 so everyone's aesthetic seems to be like low-rise jeans a belly shirt and like nine push-up bras so there's that um and there are absolutely no, really even Trish, really no significant female characters who have meaningful arcs or talk about anything other than men. And all of the women pretty much just exist to be hit on and either fucked or almost fucked by the men in the cast. Um, so I don't think we need to dig super deep on that. But a lot of what I found very troubling about this um, and for a project I'm working on, I've been doing a lot of research on uh, pickup artist culture which if you do not know, uh, extends beyond the idea of just like, oh, like I'm quote, trying to be a pickup artist, but as like a like pretty massive, predominantly online based, but uh, exists also in the form of seminars and gatherings and groups um, for mostly young white men um, who want to get better at picking up women. And so the idea is that you're idolizing sort of a guru, a, a, a pickup artist, as it as it were, um, someone who will teach you how to get women to want to have sex with you. Um, and this varies across the border from, like, sort of innocent, genuinely helpful advice, like confidence or posture or personal grooming, to some pretty scary rapey stuff uh, that gets into, like, man emotional or psychological manipulation and gaslighting and the idea of nagging. So the idea of uh, giving a woman a backhanded compliment, going after the hottest women possible, but then making them feel like they're not actually very hot or desirable so that they their lowered self-esteem will make them want to have sex with you. Right. So this is very interesting. There's a lot of sort of more specific subcultures of this. Totally. But, well, no, no. I'm, wait, sorry. I have one more thing. So, oh, yeah. But in it. line with that. Um, a lot of what has struck me about both reading in the pickup artist culture space and what I found so striking about this film is this idea of like women are just waiting for you to hit on them. And it doesn't matter. It <laughs> yeah. doesn't matter who you are. 
Uh-huh. It doesn't matter who you are or what you look like or what she's doing, right? Like if she's buying groceries or on the phone or walking her dog, like any woman anywhere is just waiting for you to hit on her because women just want to know that they're hot all the time. And if you compliment a woman in the right way, she will like you. And I think at a maybe more general commentary, well, like, well, that's problematic because it's sexually objectifying women. Of course, it's making the assumption it gets, it, it immediately gets you down the road of rape culture, whatever. But it's also to me just so like sadly, embarrassingly flawed of like, what would make what and you don't you don't even have to gender this what makes a one person attracted to another person sure flirting is good being complimented is nice but it's more complicated than that right it's like are you attracted to them are they funny are they interesting what are we bonding over am i in an appropriate place i.e not on the phone holding a baby in a bag of groceries that i would want to flirt with you and all of the women in this film pretty much just exist as like tits on a stick waiting for steve carell who is handsome in the sort of dorky way that steve carell is but it's not like and again this is not me trying to shame men who are not conventionally attractive but that like steve carell walking up to you in a video store is somehow resulting in like wow we should fuck here's my number and i'm like that's not how people behave um, and I think it's establishing that norm of like what women really want is to be complimented and women are vapid and stupid and they don't care about substance either. They are just waiting for you to like invite them inside to have sex with you is yeah, like problematic and also just very, very sad to me. <laughs> um, so I thought about that a lot. No, totally. I was going to literally point to the bookstore scene where Seth Rogen is like, Hey, you know, uh, Paul Rudd's character, Romani Falco's character, they're wrong. Like, it's not about gazelles. It's it's about plants, right? You gotta, you, you're planting a bunch of different seeds and then they turn into a plant and then you fuck the plant. And they're literally, they're like, they're like talking about uh, Elizabeth Banks's character who's in the bookstore. And they're like, you, he, and Seth Rogen's like, go hit on her. Go hit on her right now and be Dave Caruso in Jade, which is like a, a reference I don't fucking get because it's like, yeah. it's like whatever, but they're all, they're all really happy that they got it. Um, and so he goes up to her and he literally just like, like, like it's the epitome of what every pickup artist is trying to sell you. This idea that you can just approach a random woman on the street, especially like if she's in the workplace right? Just doing her job, right? And hit on her. And the way he's hitting on her isn't even by saying anything about himself. He's just literally like repeating back her statements as right. questions. The idea, be, right. the idea being women just want to talk about themselves. So you should just ask them questions. Don't reveal anything about yourself. You don't need to keep the conversation going in any way other than to just get her to keep talking. And he ends up actually being very good at it. And then Elizabeth Banks is like, oh my God, he's so hot. We should fuck. And then they almost do, but later don't. Because he's got to save his pure virginity for Trish. Um, so that they can have what appears to be absolutely terrible sex after they get married. So And the movie and the movie like does shit on this, right? Because like he's he tries this same strategy out on at speed dating and someone's like, What the fuck is wrong with you? And then he tries this out on Trish, and Trish is like, What the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, so the movie is, right. it's, it's another example of lampshading where the movie is, uh, acknowledging the problem and then saying that's the same thing as solving the problem or not being problematic. Like they're like, look how problematic we are. Everyone laugh. And you're like, that's not what we're going for. 
Yeah, no, that's exactly 100% what it is. So, what else? I have, I have one of, I have like sort of a question for you that I was thinking about. Can you think of any, uh, maybe when you were younger, films or characters that were influential, or maybe now as an adult, like, can you think of some, some stories or some characters that exemplify to you strong, positive male representation? Uh, maybe in relation to relationship or dating. Um, but I, yeah, like, I, I would be curious if you can think of any people who positively influenced you in that way, because I think as much as obviously, div quote, diversity in the sense of like, yes, more female or more POC roles is very important, or more queer roles or more trans roles is great. I think we're starting to be more and more aware of just like, how sort of shitty and one-dimensional the types of men we tend to portray on screen are, and how that really uh, negatively impacts male self-esteem and male imaging. So I'm curious if you have, uh, yeah, any any characters or films that you were able to look back on now as an adult man and be like, wow, that's a that's that's that is a good model of how to be or how to love or how to be vulnerable. Um, anything anything that comes to mind? I'm trying to rack my brain, and I'm not coming up with a lot. Maybe, like, the Duplass brothers being themselves. Like, <laughs> anytime Mark Duplass is there, I'm like, that's a nice man. Um, but, uh, yeah, anything? Yeah. I think, um, I think I'm also racking my brain. And I think that's because a lot of men don't get this i think i think the discourse around like feminism has really changed like i remember being in high school right and um like it was still considered like like i remember being in high school right and like talking about feminism and my understanding of feminism then was like rooted in equality not liberation but like even that understanding was like, why do we need to have this conversation? Women are equal to men. Like, what is the big deal about this? And so um, I think I think that was the dominant culture until very recently, honestly. Um, I would say I, I am happy that a show like Big Mouth exists. Um, I think that is a show that uh, is really trying to like, portray uh masculinity in more complex ways um and i don't know that it fully hits the mark every time but i think it does hold its characters way more accountable than um than a lot of uh comedy like a lot of sex comedies that i have seen um if that makes sense but i i am genuinely i'm genuinely racking my brain can you think of like milestones in your life your life as michael um, we talk a lot culturally about the idea of like being a man or becoming a man. Are there points in your life at which you look back and you're like, oh, that feels like not necessarily in a culturally acknowledged way, but in a personally significant one that you look back and you're like, oh, that was, uh, I don't know, like a, a pivotal moment and like you becoming that, that sounds very weird. Cause I feel like we don't often have this conversation in relation to like be a woman other than like getting your period <laughs> or like maybe becoming a mom. Um, but I'm interested in this kind of dialogue around, I guess, really just growing up, but like, yeah, like what is, what is masculinity or like manhood, like mean to you personally? Yeah. So I think we started to like, you know, it's interesting because my friend group growing up was very, um, 
we tried to combat toxic masculinity a lot, right? And I think we really patted ourselves on the back for it at the time because we were not the jocks, right? Like, we had a basic understanding about consent, right? Like, and that alcohol and consent played a role but like we were and but we were theater kids and we were comfortable with our sexuality and we weren't afraid to hug each other or kiss each other or whatever like be gay for the homies as it were (laughs) yeah um which is rare you know i think in and of itself like for you to be able to have really maybe we don't like the word intimate but like really close meaningful male relationships in a way that you felt you could be like vulnerable with each other i don't think a lot of men have that nor do they get to see it modeled on screen yeah but it wasn't perfect right like we uh there was a girl in high school where it was a game to like spank her on the ass the entire time um you know like uh and yeah. I, that was fucked up and like there was one There was one time, uh, I remember in college, one of my, uh, we had all come back from college and one of our friends was in a fraternity and he, he literally said, uh, of a girl's out at a bar, like, and she's dressed a certain way. It doesn't matter if she's drunk. She was kind of asking for it. Um, Mm -hmm. and like, you know, this is a group that prided themselves on understanding consent. Right. But, but wasn't like a group that held each other accountable. Right about like which is probably the most important part of like being friends with other men right is calling them on their shit and going like hey you're being wrong about something and i remember that conversation happening and at the time i actually secretly agreed with him uh the friend who said all of this but my other friends were jumping down his throat about it and so i was just quiet and not saying anything and so i looked good in that situation and he was the one being held accountable and right. that was a very formative moment for me of like, wait, why did I, why was I quiet here? Sure. What if I was the vocal one? How would I have responded, you know? Yeah. Um, and like, what does the shame and punishment that comes with that? Um, because sure. we didn't live in a, we, we, you know, we were starting to understand this idea of holding each other accountable as men, but we, it was still new. There was still a lot to unpack, a lot to unlearn. And that was a very formative experience for me. Um, yeah. But we didn't have a lot of, like, positive role models. My my parents never sat me down and talked to me about sex, right? Like, sure. we we never had those conversations. I think, I think just by nature of being, like, being close with each other, but, like, you know, like, our teacher, when it came to spanking the girl on the ass, like, like sat our friends down and was like, Hey, like you don't, you're not doing that. Like you're not doing mm-hmm. that. And like they, my friends were, were mad that they were being right. punished for oh, this. Oh, we're just having fun. It's not a big deal. She doesn't mind. Totally. Yeah. But it, it, um, it's one of those things now where we talk about it and we're like, yeah, that was a hundred percent correct. Um, uh, but I do question sometimes, I'm like, why Why are we able to have that conversation where we say, yeah, that's correct? Because I could totally see a different world in which we go, that was such bullshit. That was the wrong thing to happen. There was no reason to make a right. big deal about that, you know? Right, right. Um, and I think the culture that we swim in, especially with movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin, like, contribute to that culture. Um, but it's, it's really helped a lot that feminism has gone uh, mainstream, I guess, as uh, it were, yeah. As it were, like, I, I, that's still debatable, right? But, like, 
it being being woke is considered part of social capital now and so that has or shifted the boundaries very basic understanding of like consent or if if nothing else we mean no means no i think consent sexual consent is a lot more complicated than we are generally actually acknowledging it to be as a broader cultural discussion but if nothing else recognizing that like hey like a person who is extremely intoxicated cannot consent or a person who is actively saying no it is undeniably wrong for you to be pushing yourself upon that person and recognizing within you know certainly our our father's generation that was not broadly understood nor broadly discussed so that's certainly not the whole that's not all of the progress but that is you know a step toward um, I don't know, having that having that conversation more collectively. And that is valuable. And I guess coming off of what you're saying in regards to your friend group, I guess the last kind of note I want to leave this on and what, what really made me sad about the 40-year-old virgin was there's such a... Most Judd Apatow movies are really around... They're buddy comedies. They're around this very sort of bros before hoes, brotastic. Like, oh, it's about men who are able to like support each other. And the idea that this movie is in any way framed as these men are friends is just awful to me. Like, all of these men are horrible to Andy. They don't like him. They don't respect him. They don't have anything in common with him. Um, and that in the end, like, they all go to his wedding and we're supposed to feel like, oh, man. And, like, Andy got his life together because he finally got laid and, like, has has a community. And you're like, these people aren't his community. And if that's the bar for, like not only what friendship looks like among men um, and that that sort of razzing or teasing or outright like abuse is not just acceptable, but like normal or maybe inevitable um, just makes me very sad. And I think that is, um, and what you're talking about in your own experiences, like I would love to see more stories that are just able to like explore like intimate platonic, deep relationships between men that aren't that aren't supposed to be crazy or funny or quote gay um not that movies about queer men are not also valid but that, that that's not through the lens of like oh they're fucking gay for each other um and yeah would love to would love to see more of that and i don't know that we're ever going to do an episode about shithouse um this super teeny indie uh rom-com that i made michael watch over the summer but um i really just have to give uh, yeah, major, major snaps to the writer director of that film, Cooper Rafe, because I think it is one of the few depictions of kind of vulnerable, um, masculine, young masculinity that's not played for laughs at all. And that feels very real and that, uh, certainly made an impact on me. And I hope we're able to see more of those stories for, uh, for men in the audience everywhere. Yeah, it's, I guess what's just sad about that, right, is how tiny that movie is and how many people are probably never going to see it. Uh, and that this is still kind of the mainstream representation. I think it will, like like the 40-year-old virgin version of friendship, male friendship specifically, like is the is the mainstream version still in a lot of ways. Oh, definitely. And it's it's sad, right? Because you're like you're like yeah, they're at their wedding, and like literally like one of the last jokes of the movie is like is like uh, Jay is talking to his his. Uh, girlfriend slash uh mother of his child and she's like how did he afford this like giant fucking wedding and and he's like he had a lot of toys and he sold them so we need to get some toys 
And it's just like, there's still judgment right. about this, but it's like purely like, oh, you know, like, I guess that's okay because he was able to make it work because for him. Because he made money. He made right. money. Yeah. And it's, it, the whole, the whole thing is just, it's really, it's really sad. And it's like so many men are in these types of, so many cishet men are in these types of friendships. And this yeah. is, this is the thing. And this is. This is where rape culture comes from, right? Like, and and it's it's very toxic and it's very anxiety inducing, and like, you know, like there's no there's no coming together or processing how you're feeling. And the most we see of emotion in this movie and men dealing with their emotions is like this toxic version through Paul Rudd's character, who's like stalking his ex girlfriend, um, and like can't get over the breakup, um, which is like. You know, like there are men who like have a who have hangups about emotional connection, but like of course, but and like that's not pathetic or scary. That's a very normal part of ending a relationship, and the fact that like they play that up with Paul Rudd's character as like oh either he's like he's just a little bitch, he can't get over her, or that he's just actually crazy because why else would a man be hung up about a woman uh, is very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's sad, and it's an ang- it's anxiety inducing, and the expectations that virginity places upon men in particular, right, and the internalized expectations they place on themselves, it it is probably one of the most toxic things that like exists in society today as a like as a man, and totally. it it is it is the reason, and it's. It's the reason, like, the porn industry is a thing. It's the reason, it's the reason, like, like ex- sexual exploitation happens overall. Like, it is... Because of this idea that to, to be a man, not just in losing your... Not just the first time you have sex, but that you assert not just, your, both your dominance, your power, your social standing, your value as a man is rooted in your ability to conquest, to fuck as many women as you can. And that that is the cornerstone of misogyny and patriarchy and rape culture. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And they kind of get on this idea um, a little bit of uh, there's this line that is vaguely feminist in in term in when you hear it, but is not in terms of how they talk about it. But they talk about putting the pussy on the pedestal. Right. And this is like, this was like a thing that like is discord, like this discourse has been around in a lot of uh, music around like pop punk songs, because a lot of pop punk songs are about like the perfect woman uh, who, who just exists just to be with you, you know, right. like, and that's all women are for is like this like emotional growth of you as a human being. Right. right. And Right, and I think even outside of, like, the vacuum of gender, whether we're talking specifically about men or a, a comparable conversation around women, but maybe just how we talk about relationships, um, that there's such a, like, as we sort of talked about with, like, When Harry Met Sally, yes, this, like, that being in love is the most profound human emotion, that finding a person is the most valuable thing that will ever happen to you, right, and how this really erodes... Uh, I think our ability as individual humans both to enjoy our independence or to develop a strong sense of self or self-worth independent of a partnership. And that's very problematic, but there's a line um, in this movie where they talk about like, uh, you know, I just, I just don't know how to talk to women. 
Um, and that's not a, a radical statement. I think many women would say the same thing. I'm like, I just don't really know how to talk to guys. Um, and I think that in and of itself, like really is the problem because, and again, through a very heterosexual lens, but the idea of like talking to someone you're interested in or dating someone you're interested in, like that that's the scary other different thing, right? And that men are really raised to be like, like women are different and there are different rules that apply when talking to a woman or being with a woman or spending time with a woman. And I'm like, no, there's not. Right. And, and really what we're talking about is if you've never had the ability to develop intimate relationships with another person, and I mean intimate, not as in sexual, but as in emotionally close, as in trusting, as in longstanding, as in honest, if you've never had the opportunity to build those relationships, you're not going to be able to build that kind of relationship with a partner of any gender at all. And I think that is the real disservice that we do to men, sure, in the vacuum of the made up land of the 40 year old virgin, but just sort of in general that we say, well, having meaningful relationships with others, especially God forbid with other men is gay and stupid and lame and inappropriate or just not relevant. You just need a girlfriend. You just need to get laid. You don't need to worry about all of this other stuff. When in reality, how could you ever be a good partner to someone else? If you have no basic understanding of your own needs or your ability to communicate those needs, um, and perhaps that is a slight reach for the film we are discussing. Um, but I think, yeah, certainly fits into this larger idea of, of masculinity on screen and hopefully something that we are slowly starting to, to chip away at uh, as, as an industry. So we will stand by for who knows what we'll be making 15 years from now, you guys. Maybe we will have fixed patriarchy <laughs> and uh, everything will everything will be fine. But uh, yeah, otherwise, Cooper Rafe, keep making movies because uh, we need some more more male advocacy out here. So would you how should people feel about this movie? Like, what's the walk away thing? Like, should people watch this movie? Should we recommend people watch this movie? Should this movie be completely stripped from the lexicon? How should we remember this and think about this? I mean, I don't think you need to go watch this movie. I feel like if you're listening to this episode, either you've seen this movie and you've been nodding along being like, hmm, yeah, I remember that. Or you haven't seen this movie, in which case, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm really not recommending that you watch it now in 2021. Um, but I hope that this d dialogue has helped maybe facilitate the way in which we think about comedies or male-led comedies in general. Um, but I don't... Uh, not that this wasn't a popular film, but I don't think this is like really going down in the canon of iconic films. And I don't think it needs to, I don't think we need to cancel this movie. Um, but I don't think it's uh, really, really vital in any meaningful way. I don't, what about you? Is, does this movie matter? Should we talk about it? What should our listeners take away from this? Yeah, I think, I think we, I'm not going to say people should go see this movie, but if you tell me that this movie is a movie that you really enjoy, or that you like this movie, uh, I trust you less as a person. <laughs> I think is the way I've, I'm going to put it. Because in 2021, I would hope that you've done some critical analysis of how, of, sure. especially after Me Too, like that you would at a minimum think a lot, of, uh, Me Too, or just like the fact that like it is so, like, like hopefully we are starting to understand that trans people are actually people. Uh, like there are so many things in it where I'm like, Ugh. Um, and I feel like, I feel like, you know, I went on one good way to tell how you should feel about a movie, like, uh, or to, I guess not how you should feel, but to see how your, your version of your opinion of a movie matches up with other people is to go on to Letterboxd, uh, 
and look at the other reviews um uh or just google x movie title and then problematic in the title that's that's literally what i was recommending to lily like before this episode of like how do we could like do some research on this and that's how we like think about like what are the takes we're missing and like one of the things that struck me in those letterboxd reviews was like uh they're and i i see this a lot around steve carell around um around these like male comedies like uh like role models um forgetting sarah marshall uh you know these knocked up these like buddy romance comp romance comedies that are also romantic comedies like is like there's just this like there's this like uh well you know like not all the jokes are very pc anymore but like the movie is still solid um and i don't know i think just just that alone like the notion that like this was ever acceptable like these jokes were ever accessible is like something that needs to be interrogated sure or that the essential conceit of the film the idea that like oh it's hilarious and pathetic that this guy hasn't had sex is sort of an inherently i'm not even i don't like the word problematic because i think that that much like pc becomes co-opted into like the assumption of a certain kind of political agenda where i'm just like is super disrespectful right and that without even getting into the specific ways in which this film is like racist, sexist, etc. I think just examining the basic premise of this film and to be like, "Eh, that hasn't aged super well. Um, Yeah. And well, and it's just like a lot of the, like there were several reviews where it was like, you know, this movie is not very PC. It didn't age well, but it's still very wholesome. And I'm just like, the fuck do you mean by wholesome? Like respectfully. So like, if that is your opinion of this movie, you have some serious evaluating to do and like you know i'm not gonna tell people like like people can grow people can change um and this is a movie that we all as men need to watch and hardcore evaluate because it is very toxic and harmful and i'm not gonna recommend people watch it yeah yeah and maybe last thing i'll leave us with is i think if you do I would imagine if you like, if you have a soft spot for this movie, it's probably because there's a nostalgia element. And I think with this film or with any film, maybe that you, you kind of know hasn't aged super well, but you're like, oh, I still think it's funny. I don't think it's about, like, you can't think this movie is funny. Um, but maybe the next time you watch it, thinking about why, what you're laughing at, or why you think it's funny, and from there, being able to make your, your own decisions about it. So yeah. that's, that's why we're here. Just encouraging you to think slightly more critically. That's That's really it yup that's that's such a good way to to approach it because it's like we can't tell you what to think and no. we shouldn't we shouldn't tell you what to think but um holy fuck this, mo- this movie this holy fuck. You- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah so thank you all for listening and uh i guess if i did the intro i get to do the outro too here <laughs> this is the outro this is the outro uh, this is the part where you cut yup all right Blockbusted is an independently produced podcast created by Lily Yasuda and Michael Wolf. Our theme song is Retro Future Clean by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Music, or anywhere else you choose to get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, and if it is on Apple Music, take the time to leave a positive review so other listeners can find us. If you have thoughts, comments, or future episode suggestions, feel free to reach out at blockbustedpod at gmail.com. That's blockbustedpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.